Anoitasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Namoitasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Namoitasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambhutasa Bhutang Dhammang Sankhang Namasame It's very nice to see the house filled again. It's lovely. And today is the death anniversary of Ajahn Chah. He died in 1992 on January the 16th. And he's our, you could say, our spiritual grandfather. So Ajahn Sumedho being our spiritual father, Ajahn Chah our spiritual grandfather. And... Uh, so he died in 1992 and his body was kept for one year for people to pay respects in Thailand and was cremated one year later in 1993. And in 1993, Ajahn Santachita, Ajahn Mehta and myself, under different names, were all living at Amravati Monastery. We'd just been there a few months. And uh, that winter retreat, we had two-month winter retreats in those days. We chanted, every evening we chanted the Vipassana Bhumi that we chanted tonight, plus more of the, um, what's called the Pang Sakula chanting. It's the chanting that's done when somebody dies. And this chanting, people often ask us, you know, what do we do when somebody dies? You know, where do we direct the mind stream you could say or you know what do we do to help that person on their way and what we do as uh, Theravadan Buddhists is we chant the it's, it's, it's the Abhidhamma chanting and in this chanting it, it's actually listing all of the many elements that make up what we call a person what we think of it as ourselves and in, in chanting these lists of aspects at that time of death or shortly after death, it's, the intention is to, is, to give, is to open the possibility of that mind stream or that consciousness to realise that it is not actually any of those elements and let go and be fully free. So we are all here, probably, I don't know, I don't know all of you, there may be some bodhisattvas amongst us, <laughs> but most of us, I'd say, are here because we um, are, well, have taken birth, let's say, because we thought that there was something good here, that there was something attractive, something attracted us back into this human body, onto this planet. There was something we were looking for, that we believed could be fulfilled in this human body. And uh, I was thinking about when I was younger, in, in my teens, and but probably more so in my early 20s, I had quite a strong sense that I could, I could uh, direct my life the way I wanted, to, to some degree. 
and even to the point of, of um, deciding whether I was going to age or how I was going to age and whether I was going to be well or you know, a healthy person, this kind of thing. I actually believed for some time that I could decide this. And there's a, there's a chant that we do in the monastery. I started going to the monastery in my early 20s and there's a chant that we do that, that says, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond ageing. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. And uh, I would refuse to chant this because I thought, no, <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> These people are just convincing themselves. And if I just really believe that this is, you know, that I won't, then then I won't. <laughs> But of course, over time, I had to, I had to, <laughs> to bow to the truth of, of ageing, sickness, and, yeah, and death, although this body hasn't died yet. But uh, gradually I had to ac- accept that this is the nature of things, that everything that comes together into being something has to end, it has to come, come apart again. Every conditioned thing that arises whether it's tiny or great, whether it's the entire universe or a feeling that arises while we're sitting in meditation, everything that comes into being has a process and ends. And this is the nature of things. So in chanting the Vipassana Bhumi and the, the other chants in the Pangsakula, we're reminding ourselves of the, the many aspects that make up what we take to be ourselves. And in reminding ourselves what, what makes up this sense of me, we can start to take that apart and see, well, where is, you know, where is the, where can I really put my finger on, this is me, this is really what I am. So in the first part of that chanting, we list the five candors. And the, the word kanda actually, it sounds quite impressive in Pali, the five kandas, but it actually just means heaps. <laughs> the five heaps. And it's, it's a way that the Buddha used. He used many approaches to seeing the truth of the way things are, of approaching the truth. And one of them was to, to point to these five heaps, which make up what we think of ourselves or others. And the first Kanda, the first heat being form. So we think of this body, it feels very much like this is my body. I can't feel what Sister Meta's feeling in her body, but I can feel what I'm feeling in my body. So it feels like, well, this is me and this is my body. So that, that must be, that's for sure. That's not mine. And none of those ones are out there are mine, but this one's mine. But then I can't actually determine what I'm going to feel in my body. Feelings arise there for a while they change I can't you know I'm, I would li- you know, I might think I'd like to sit in meditation and have a pain-free blissful meditation and then actually as I sit I feel tired and uncomfortable and there's pain starts to build up in the hip and so if this body's mine how come I can't decide to make it the way I want is it mine how come I can't uh, determine, how come I couldn't determine how tall it would be or how, how heavy or light-boned it was or 
what colour skin it has, whether the hair goes grey or not, you know, can't determine those things. So is it mine? And the and also the same applies to things, you know. Things we we know that this I know that this window set is not me, but if I lived here long enough I might get attached to this house and think such a lovely windowsill, it's been made so nicely. Or if my father made it, you know, to start to identify with it. Whatever. So, just recognising that these things are not... Whatever belongs to us is not me or mine, including this body. And it's, this is to be investigated. I'm, this isn't that I'm telling you and you have to believe me, but it's to be investigated for yourself. And feelings... Feelings are not self. So they certainly feel like self when they arise. Feelings. Bodily feelings. Pain, pleasure. Mental, emotional feelings. I used to be... When I first um, came to live at the monastery, I was very, very sensitive. I used to, used to pick up on every little nuance that was going on in a room... And it could be very painful and uncomfortable. And I remember once going to speak to the senior monk of this monastery and saying, oh, I just don't know what to do, you know, and explain to him all of these complexity of feelings I was experiencing. And he just looked at me and said, well, you know, the Buddha said that there are three kind of feelings, painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant feelings. And when he said that, it was like, oh, that's it, you know. There, there was this, all of these stories, so many complex stories, and then this and that, and, and it was all terribly real and complex and painful and important. And then he just pointed out, look, either it's plain, painful, it's pleasant, or it's neutral. Just look at it that way. Oh, that was a relief. <laughs> so, you know, feelings... They arise, they're there for a while and they change. They're pleasant, they're painful or they're neither pleasant nor painful. Have a look, you know, for yourselves. Mental formations. Mental formations are not self. So our, our mind, I remember one of the first uh, teachings I ever heard of Ajahn Sumedho, just a line, was... Don't believe the mind, it weaves webs of illusion. And when I heard that, I was, it completely dumbfounded me, because I thought, well, if I can't even believe my own mind, what is there? Surely my mind must be what I can believe, because otherwise, what is there? But the mind also, you know, the thoughts that we take to be ourself and our own, are they? Are they truly what we are? So we, won't, we sit in meditation for 45 minutes with the intention of having a peaceful meditation. And then we think about, oh, did I leave the gas on at home? And, and we start thinking think about where we could be tonight if we weren't here, or think about our family, you know, all the things that we think about. Those thoughts arise, they're there for a while and they pass. 
are they who and what we are? Once you start to investigate this more deeply, the the um, the non-personal nature of thought, then you can start to play with it. You can start to change you know, negative thought patterns for positive thought patterns, harmful thought patterns for generous or compassionate thought patterns. Or even just the kind of nonsense or compulsive planning or stuck record thoughts that might go on. You can transform them, use a mantra instead of thinking these wasting that mind space. Put a mantra in there. In the in the Thai forest tradition, the mantra Buddho is used. And I find this walking around the streets here, you know, just to use the mantra Buddho. Buddho, instead of thinking about this and that. And it brings me back to my feet, back into the body, back into the present. So we can transform our thought habits and and use our thought in a in a wholesome and generous way. If we if we learn to get to know the thinking process and recognise that it's not actually who we are. And people often come and they say, Oh well I can't practice metta because I'm just so I can't practice loving kindness because I've I'm so I'm such a warrior or I have so much negativity. You know, so then you know where you're starting from. If you have a tendency to worry, you know you're starting from, from that tendency. And from that place, recognising what you're starting from, start to notice it and transform it. Question. Question the purpose of worry. Whether it's going to help anything at all. And see if you can replace that with a an intention of, well, even an opening to, to unknowing. Okay, don't know, don't know mind. Instead of worrying about what might happen, open up, you know. Okay, don't know what's going to happen. But you can still intend, still act and intend from a wholesome place. Do one's best. You do your job and then let go. You don't try to force the outcome. Perception. Perception is not self. This is very interesting. We really create the world through our perceptions. So there's the the perception of what we see and how we add to that. I like this, I don't like that. This feels familiar, this feels a bit strange. You know, there's the perceptions. So coming into this this evening, you know, there's some people who haven't been here before. There might be a perception like, oh, there's a lot of ritual, this is a bit weird, all this parley. So then that will create a certain perception of the, the place. So if you come just one evening and then go away and never come back again, that will be, you'll have a perception of how it is based on this 
this couple of hours or so. But is that really what it is? This is a little slice. It's a little part of of this vihara, of this um, like monastic experience. And uh, also when we don't know, uh, sometimes something can ha- you know, things can happen, somebody re- relates to us in a way that we find a bit unfriendly, and then we start adding perceptions onto that. So rather than opening and having the don't know mind, okay, that was a bit strange, don't know what was going on there, we start to go, oh, I bet they, I bet they really don't like me. I bet they resent that three weeks ago when I said that. And, you know, we start to, to add our perceptions onto what we actually don't know. So the skillful response to that is to say, don't know. Keep it open. It's much more somehow gratifying on the short term to create a story and to feel that you really do know what's happened and why and that they really do da-da-da-da-da. It's somehow gratifying to the ego to do that. But the skillful response is to just open and say, don't know, and let it go, let it be what it is, not adding. And uh, sense consciousness... So this is mostly what informs us. You know, we're, we're, we're constantly informed and bombarded through the senses. The eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. In Buddhism the mind is also one of the senses. So a few days ago, uh, Amy and I went to Haight-Ashbury. <laughs> <laughs> looking for candlesticks for the shrine and uh, it's really the first time I'd been out of the I've sort of been around here but I hadn't really been into the city centre well, I think that's centre and um, there are a lot of very fascinating things to see <laughs> <laughs> people and things and shops so we had to keep going into these rather beautiful shops looking for candlesticks and we didn't manage to find them <coughs> Candle holders, and uh, but uh, on a visual level, there was a lot. And I noticed that I was looking at this and looking at that, and oh, isn't that interesting? And (laughs) not being very restrained in my eyes. And uh, when I got back in the evening, I felt exhausted. I felt exhausted, and I realised, gosh, so much energy comes out of your eyes. You're just spilling out there, and. sound. Here we're very lucky, we're in a very beautifully quiet place. There's a little bit, I mean, considering this is a Friday night, it's extraordinarily quiet. <laughs> One motorbike went by, I think. And uh, so we're, we're blessed really to have this very quiet environment to live in. But of course not everybody, you know, has that. And as your has just come back from India, it's very hard to find a quiet place in India. <laughs> get used to the, the kind of bombardment of sound whether it's 
music or people or insects or fireworks going off in the middle of the night, all kinds of things. You get used to it. It's, it's just the sound consciousness. And, you know, if we make an enemy of sound, if we feel like, for my meditation, I really need it to be peaceful, then we're going to suffer. We're going to start resenting those kids who are walking past the gate, the front door, you know. But we don't actually have to make an enemy of sound or fall in love with sound. We can know it for what it is, sound consciousness. Recognise the effect it has on us, the, the, the physical effect, it'll have a vibration. It is a vibration sound and it'll have a vibration in our body, mind. So recognising it as it is, sound and the effects of sound as they are. The same with all the senses, sweet smells. And I'm sitting here looking at this beautiful rose that just came from Brenda's garden on the Legend Charles Shrine. And uh, it's very beautiful and it has this, just a subtle scent. It's so lovely. And uh, a couple of days ago I was walking past the, when the, they were putting out the garbage, filling out the garbage trucks. And I was like, oh, I don't, you know, kind of want to hold my breath as I go by. Don't want to smell that. But then I was looking at the guy who was working. I thought, well, he has to work. You know, he has to smell that every day of the week, probably. Mm. That's what he works with. And uh, so we, you know, we, we run after. We, we love to have the smell of a sweet rose, and we want to put a peg on our nose when we go past the garbage truck. But the 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 teaching is to. To be, to be open and to notice the effects of these things and let them arise, be there and cease. So it's the same with all the senses. Taste, sound, touch, smell, sight, feelings, yeah, touch, and thoughts. It's the same with all of them. They all come and they go. It's the same for everything. It comes and it goes. And we get so involved and entangled and identified with these changing experiences. We, we take them to be what we are. Or we want them. We want, we want the pleasant taste. We want that lovely meal or that sweet rose or that beautiful view of the ocean. And we don't want to see the, the sewage system of San Francisco or, you know. We don't want to see the poverty. We want to see the beauty. So in the Buddha's path of awakening, we're learning to open to all of it and be with the feeling that arises. Let it be there. Watch it change. Notice the ending. And this is really important, to notice the ending of things. It's not something we're conditioned to do in this society. We're conditioned to, to go for what's new and different, <coughs> a new experience, a new product, you know, whatever it is. 
So notice the ending of things. Notice the cessation of things. And the moment of peace, which usually comes after their cessation. And in doing this, we start to really see this natural process of arising and ceasing. It starts to lose its enchantment. We're not so enchanted by it anymore. And we don't have to spend our life running away from what we don't like towards what we like. It's an endless journey. This is exactly what keeps us caught in samsara, in the the constant cycle of birth and death, is the movement towards what we want and away from what we don't want. It's very simple and very difficult. So in this practice we're learning, just bit by bit, to open to the way things are. To be with the way things are. The Dhamma is here and now, it's present. It's always here and now. Always here and now. So at any, any point, no matter where you are, what you're experiencing, what's going on, when you remember to come back to the present, just, you can just know that the Dhamma is right here in this situation. And coming into it, you know, we, we, have this, we have the forms and we have the images, we have many reminders, we live in these robes, you know, <coughs> we just have to look down and we're reminded. So, you know, it's, it's a great advantage because it's very easy to forget very easy to forget but you know this is a it's a support but it's not a necessity at any moment any breath any footstep any movement we make anything is an opportunity to come back and open to this to to remind us that the Dhamma is here and now present It's very beautiful that the Buddha gave such simple uh, reference points as the breath, the body and the mind and feelings. They're what, what are with us all the time. We're never, apart from those, perhaps it's sleep, but even then the, the mind is usually going on. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what he pointed to is what is with us. It's, it's ever-present. It's it's, it's, as long as this body is alive, there will be breath. So we can always come back to this breath, or this movement, this step. So it's really important to notice um, the battles that we get into with what is happening in the present. Because as long as we're not enlightened, most, you know, we, we're basically, to some degree, in conflict with the way things are. So just notice that. You know, it's something to notice in our life, in any moment of our life. 
then what is stopping me from being fully open to this moment as it is? It's a question we can ask ourselves at, at any time. So when Ajahn Chah died, the phrase that was used was that he laid down the candors. People didn't say Ajahn Chah has died, they said Ajahn Chah has laid down the candors. He's laid down those heaps. He doesn't need to pick them up anymore. He's done, he'd done the work that was to be done. And at the end of his life, when the last breath left the body, there was no need to keep to go searching for another heap of <laughs> trouble, but he could, he'd seen the, the truth and, and dwelt in the truth and was, you know, could lay those candles down, let them be, let them go back to where they came from, not have to pick them up. So this is, a, this is really the work. You know, it feels like it's, it's me and my practice and I have to develop myself and my, my practice in order to become enlightened. It, it feels like that. And to some degree it's true. We do, we do have to develop skillful qualities of mind. We do have to develop discernment, wisdom and compassion. And... And I find that that very elusive place of right effort is difficult. Certainly we have to develop these qualities. But the, the experiences that are going on, the feelings in the body, the thoughts, perceptions, the emotions, they are simply doing what they're doing. We don't have to make them ours. We can, or rather, we have already made them ours. So we need to learn how to give them back, how to let them return, how to let this body be part of nature, through in in a process of nature, and how to let the emotions simply be energy and allow them to return, allow the the balance to return to its natural place. So it's also very very common in, in Dharma practice to have an idea. We were speaking earlier on about the, you know, how idealistic we can be. And I think particularly Western people, we're very idealistic, we have very high ideals about what, you know, what we should be like and what the practice should be. And... Uh, this path is a humbling path. It certainly has brought me to my knees, not just bowing in front of the shrine, <laughs> you know, a number of times. And because we, you know, we have this idea of, of what we would, who we would like to be, or of, you know, as a, you can see, as a Buddhist nun, we would like to, you know, for ourselves or for you, you might do it to us, you know, we would like to be completely free from any kind of stinginess, to be free-flowing, loving-kindness, to have really strong practice, to have to jump out of bed in the morning, 
self-criticism or negativity. So Ajahn Chah, he was a he grew up in a a village. You know, he was a village boy in a poor part of Thailand. It was very very poor farmers lived there. They had to really work hard to scrape a living. And uh, it was pretty basic, simple life. And he, through his practice, you know, and through certainly through past cultivation, I would suggest as well, but through his practice, he influenced and continues to influence thousands and thousands of people. Just one little village boy with a very basic education from the poor part of Thailand. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? So, you know, just have confidence that even just changing the way you think will have an effect on, on certainly on yourself, but also on, on those around you. It'll, it, this is the way that we, you know, we can't change the world, but we can influence it, we can transform in a little way the world of our own heart and the world around us through our own skillful thought and speech and action. And many people took the five precepts this evening and this is also a great support it's the, the framework, really, the kind of basic framework for practice, within which to practice. Without those five precepts, you know, it's difficult to get very far, really, without those five precepts. It's like you take three steps forward and ten steps back. So... You know, contemplate them. If you, if you haven't taken them, you don't feel you want to live by them, just think about them, you know, contemplate them, what they are, what, it, what they mean, what would I have to give up in order to live within those five precepts. And think about things like, you know, what if everybody in the world were to keep even just one of those precepts? If everybody in the world were to keep the first precept not to harm, intentionally harm any living being, it would be a very different world. You know. So just contemplate them. So I'd like to end there. And we could end with the, the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.